Elden Ring has been one of the most anticipated games since its reveal at E3 2019. Advertised as a collaboration between director Hidetaka Miyazaki and author George R.R. R. Martin, fans didn't know what to expect, but they knew they were excited. As more information about the game began to surface, it was clear that Elden Ring was something far bigger and more ambitious than From Software had ever taken on before. While it still has the DNA of what made previous games like Dark Souls, Bloodborne, and Sekiro special, Elden Ring sets out to do something different. But is it any good? I'm your host, Jordan Walkup, and here to help me answer that question are my brothers. I'm Jason. And I'm Jackson. Foul Tarnished. Are you ready? Ready to get into it? Felt pretty good about that one. <laughs> that was something. I'm glad that you feel good about it. Elden Ring. Never heard of it. We know. It's been a long time coming, but like, really, I thought it was longer for some reason. Like, rumors about this game started way before 2019, but I was thinking like it was officially revealed like like five years ago, not two. <laughs> I don't know where I got that twisted. I don't think I knew this game existed until last year. Before we really get into like the game itself, I got a... I got to apologize for something. So I think it was our first episode of the year, our game of the year for 2021 episode, where uh, we were talking about our most anticipated games. And I said this was mine. And at the time, I said that the toxicity wasn't necessarily reflective of the entire From Software fan base, and that it overall really wasn't that bad of a fandom. But as we got closer to Elden Ring's release, there was like a uniform effort by every From Software fan in the entire world that was like, we got to prove them wrong, quick! Because these last couple, like, this last like month on the internet has been insufferable because of this game. That being said, <laughs> this game is very, very good. Like, one of the best I have played in a very, very long time. I have major personal problems with this game, but, like, this is still, for most of it, at least, uh, some of the most fun I've had with a video game in a while. Man, I just freaking hate this game, but it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I said there were parts of this game that I have problems with. Um, I think it's pretty good. Needs yeah. more of a... Needs more of a story, so... My final review is 0 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of uh Jason, why don't you just set us up a little bit? What is Elden Ring? It's just the the newest in a long line of Dark Souls games, but this time it's open world. There's big trees. There are big trees. That's the important part here, the big trees. Yeah. And if you ask anime fans, those big trees are a reference to Berserk. <laughs> because one time Miyazaki <laughs> said he liked that. <laughs> So it is a it's it's very much a from software game in terms of you go out, you kill things, you get experience. If you die, you lose that experience and you only have one shot to go back and recover it. 
and that experience is both your use for leveling up and is like your currency in the game. So it's a very punishing game because if you die and don't recover that, you lose potentially hours of progress. I lost 55,000 runes last night, and I'm still mad about it. It still has that side of it, and it still has some of the progression loops that you see from previous software games, but it's thrust into this entirely different environment. There's no longer this linear system of checking off you know, boss after boss as you move, move to this world. Pretty much from the beginning, you can go a thousand different directions and see a thousand different things. Yeah, I would say the main focus of this game is definitely the exploration, more so than just going from boss to boss. For sure. Which is, sure. it's a nice change mm-hmm. of pace. Um, yeah. Because it definitely feels like, you know, Dark Souls, Bloodborne. I, I haven't played Sekiro, so I don't really know. But I, it, it kind of feels like your focus in those games is mostly just, all right, you took this boss out, now take out the next one. Right. Um, Elden Ring kind of adds an extra layer where you're you're still trying to take out all these bosses. And there are like eight, I think, main ones that you need to take care of. Twelve. Twelve. So that's like eight plus an additional four. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's like eight plus some. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like there is still that focus story wise, but the amount of open area that you can just explore and the sheer number of like, interesting things just in the background is done better than just about any open world I've ever seen before. And it adds a lot to the, to the experience. So before we get too much further into like the world and exploration or anything, let's talk a little bit about our background with the series or with the, with from software's other games, Jackson, why don't you kick us off? Uh, I have played the first 30 minutes of Sekiro twice. <laughs> that's it. Have you even like touched that's, another? That's it. Okay. No, I've never I I take that back. I've played the first 30 minutes of Bloodborne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I would say if you're going to play one, you should probably play Bloodborne. I I I've put a little bit of time into several of them, but not like a huge amount. I I mean, I played Demon Souls the original when it was on like PlayStation Plus, uh, <laughs> yeah, a decade ago, <laughs> right. right? Um, I played the first like few hours of Dark Souls one a few times. I played a few hours of Bloodborne, maybe twenty minutes of Sekiro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I also wouldn't say that I'm like I I have a very deep understanding of the series or anything like that or the genre I guess. So I kind of came into this with just. The things that I've heard people say throughout the years of, For you know, me, you need to get good. The whole game is just about being better at the game. And that, I just want to go ahead and get it out of, out of the way. It's not about getting good. It's about <laughs> yeah. figuring out what you can exploit. And yeah. sometimes the thing you're exploiting is definitely not something the game developers intended. <laughs> yeah. there. Sometimes, sometimes you do just take on a tough boss head on sword and shield in hand and you just you know you you muscle it out and then other times you lead that boss to a hallway where it's just a little bit too big to get to the door and you cast spells at it from 50 feet away my experience with the series is pretty weird because i think bloodborne was the first one i even tried 
And I gave it a thorough try. Like, I, I played several hours. I think I beat the first three bosses and, you know, covered a, a decent chunk of the map as far as, you know, just exploration goes. But it just never really got its hooks in me. I felt like the time I was spending with it wasn't super rewarding. And I think, looking back, it's more just I wasn't taking the time to fully understand the systems. But, you know, I, you know, I, I liked a lot of it, but it never really clicked. And then Sekiro came out and just, like, swept all these award shows. A lot of people that I, you know, follow online and stuff were just praising this game left and right. So I decided I was going to at least give it as much of a shot as I gave Bloodborne. And I totally fell in love with this game. Like, to this day, I think some of, like, the coolest moments I've ever seen in a video game came from Sekiro. And I, you know, I've gone back to it three times now. I've beaten it twice. I've started a third time. And that's just in like the year and a half since I beat it the first time. So it's it's a game that has really, really stuck with me. And just based on how much I loved it, I was so excited for Elden Ring. I, I think a big problem I've kind of run into with the series is that every time I play one of the Soulsborne games, I'm like, oh, I should go play Dark Souls 1. And then I do, and then I remember that Dark Souls 1 came out in 2011, and they've perfected a lot of things since then. Yeah, yeah, Dark Souls 1 feels a little bit rough. Like, I pl- I tried playing it immediately after playing Sekiro, and oof, <laughs> it's, it's a different, different ballgame. <laughs> a lot of it, I think, was even solved by the time Bloodborne came out, and maybe even by the time Dark Souls 2 came out. Although I've heard Dark Souls 2 is the one that most people dislike the most because it's more open-ended, which, uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about the argument to really get into it, but I I know people don't like Dark Souls 2. But Bloodborne feels so good that I have to assume that, you know, it only came out a year after Dark Souls 2. They probably had a lot of the things that I like about Bloodborne already in that game. Yeah. Yeah, but those things are missing from Dark Souls One. Dark Souls One definitely feels like a lot rougher around the edges. Everything's a lot sure. slower, and it just, it just doesn't feel as good. But all this really just to say, of the three of us, none of us are from software experts. Like we know very little about the games from like a lore standpoint or. I mean, I'm sure there are entire, like, mechanics of the game we don't even know are there. And, you know, we we don't have the background knowledge that a lot of From Software fans will have, which will certainly influence our reviews, but I don't think it's necessarily holding us back. You know what? I think I left something really important out from my experience with FromSoft games. Um, I did play the hit game... Eternal Ring, ah, from two thousand on the on the yeah. PlayStation Two, and I I did not like it. It was very difficult. <laughs> I was like seven years old, no idea what I was doing in that. Yeah, but I I did like the box art because it had this edgy line. It was like not all fantasies are final, and I was like, oh snap! <laughs> really taking it to Square Enix with this one. <laughs> Final Fantasy never recovered after the release of Eternal Ring. No (laughs) one has ever played another Final Fantasy game or even talked about another one. 
I was thinking about it, and I haven't played any other Soulsborne game other than Elden Ring, but I guess the closest thing I've played to, like, a Souls-like, uh, Fallen Order, which I really liked. I know there's definitely some big differences there in the fact that, uh, you can take out bosses in the first try. <laughs> um, it's, it's ten times less challenging, but, uh, that's probably the closest thing I've played to a Souls game. And and like the the souls like genre this this idea of you know progress that you lose when you die and you have to recover and you know enemies resetting whenever you rest like that's a very like that's a staple for action RPGs in general now and yeah. it was really I really like Salt and Sanctuary yeah Salt and Sanctuary was great that was actually probably my my first time like really getting into a game in this style before any of the actual big ones okay. Well, I think that's enough meandering. Let's talk about Elden Ring. Jackson, I know of the three of us, you're the one who has probably had the most issues with this game so far. Why don't you sort of start off with a few of those and we'll try we'll try to walk the landmine that is criticizing a from software game. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm glad we don't have a huge uh, a huge following because <laughs> me uh, too. We would get bashed so bad just for what I'm about to say. Yeah. Uh, I do not enjoy the boss fights in this game. I I think a lot of that stems from the fact that boss fights are already my least favorite part of combat in pretty much every game. I also just don't find like having the fight in a boss ten times before you beat it fun. Like, that's just, that's a personal preference, so I don't think that makes the game bad, because obviously a lot of people enjoy that, considering this game has hit extremely high numbers, <laughs> but personally, I just, I don't find that fun, and it's just not something that interests me. I do think that a lot of it really comes from what you're looking for in a game, and where you're at, you know, as a person when you're playing the game, because I know for a fact that if I were trying to play this game as the type of person and the type of gamer I was at Jackson's age, I would have hated this game because that was probably, you know, roughly, I was a little bit older, but, you know, getting into the ballpark of when I played Bloodborne for the first time and that game made me so mad, like, on so many occasions. And I really haven't felt that at all in this game, even though I probably died just as much. I like bosses. He likes bosses like he likes his coffee. Like he likes his women. Yeah, coffee cup. <laughs> bosses in video games do not interest me too much. I prefer like taking on groups of smaller enemies or like a few larger enemies, but nothing like nothing like too big. No, uh, no margets. I hate when they freaking put my um, freaking combat skills to the test. In <laughs> the bosses that I have like before are bosses that were a fun challenge. Like, I don't want a boss to just be fun. Like, I wanted to challenge what I've done in a game so far, but I still want it to be fun, too. All the bosses I fought in this game, I've had no fun with. They were definitely a challenge, but I have had no fun fighting them. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a mindset you have to get into. I think, like, if you know you're going to come up against a difficult challenge, and you know what's waiting on the other end of the challenge, it makes it a little bit more enjoyable. Well, like, I knew coming up to the first story boss that, like, this was going to be hard. Like, this was going to take me at least, like, ten tries to beat. I have fought the first boss m 
at least 20 times now. I think the farthest I've got to beating it is like a quarter of its health left. And that was maybe twice. <laughs> in in my experience, so I'm about I'm about halfway to the game. I've fought five of the five of the twelve story bosses. I'm at the I've found the six, but I haven't actually attempted it yet. Of the five that I have fought, and most of the optional bosses I've fought, Margit was the most difficult one that I've battled. Not because Margit's abilities are that crazy, or because he does that much damage, as much as everything you fight prior to that you know, is just a speed bump where Margit is hitting a brick wall at full speed. Like, you're just not prepared for how much tougher it gets at that moment. And most of their bosses have been comparable in terms of, like, aggression and, you know, amount of health and amount of damage and all that stuff. But you know what you're getting into a little bit more and you know what works more. So I think, I do think Margit probably is the, the toughest, it, toughest boss I've fought so far. At least the one I've died to the most, I, I think. Margit definitely is more of a tutorial for dodging, dodge rolling. Um, at least for me. Like, I feel like I could get away with just using the shield when I was doing most fights up until that. But Margit was the one that was like, all right, well, if you don't dodge roll, you're going to get hit by this attack that always combos into another. Uh, I thought it was the uh, tutorial on how to make your summon distract the boss while you sit back and just cast magic. That it helps it helps to do that as well. That's a good way to now, take out its first health uh, first health bar. But yeah, first well, health no, bar first phase first like yeah yeah. Oh okay, I was about to say no no no. It it only has one form, <laughs> but I mean the game does give you options. I just wish that it was a little more upfront about what those options were and what they're useful for because just by chance, not really necessarily looking up, like I, I watched a video explaining like, you know, what the starting gear for each class was and stuff. But I picked the astrologer just because like, Oh, it seems cool to have like, you know, some magic early on. I didn't know having magic early on was going to give me such a huge one up in fights like that one. And I wish it was a little more, I wish it was just a little more upfront about like, hey, if you're struggling, you know, try magic, try summons, try, you know, calling on another player. It doesn't really tell you that stuff. <laughs> Even if you're, you know, hitting your head against the same wall, it never like, it never bothers to tell you that there are ways to address those things a little more effectively. Even if they're yeah. still hard, there's it's a leg up. If you don't start with magic, like it's going to be several hours until you're going to run into anything that'll give you like a staff or whatever yeah. it is that lets you cast faith spells. I chose whatever the like the most basic just like swordsman class was. I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> um I don't think I found a staff until maybe 8 hours into the game. Yeah, I mean, and you only found that one cuz I told you where it was. <laughs> well, I I had already found it. I just forgot that I found it because I didn't have enough intelligence to ah. use it. And then you reminded me that I found it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely something that uh, you get a huge leg up if you pick a class that starts with it. Dark Souls 1 was the same way. One of the classes in Dark Souls 1 was the Pyromancer. And if you picked it, then you would start with the ability to cast like uh, some kind of fireball spell. Which, you know, it's not like that powerful in terms of all the spells in the game. But... No one else is going to get that until you're several bosses in, and it'll just melt through the first enemies because they're not going to have any 
fire resistance. I've watched a lot of speedruns of Dark Souls 1, even if I haven't played it. So, like, I, I know, like, weird esoteric uh, stuff like that. <laughs> one of the problems, or not necessarily problems, but one of the things that makes From Software games hard for people to get into is that the, you know, they can give you a tutorial that explains what an item does. And they can give you tutorials about like how different attacks and stuff work. But at the end of the day, From Software has its own language. And if you don't understand that language, then it's, it's like you're not making any progress sometimes. Because sometimes you'll get an item that sounds totally useless, but is actually critical for progressing in the game. And, oh, like here's a good example. So I've done very, very few side quests in this game so far. I am 45 hours in, and I think I've only truly completed one side quest. And all I got from it was like, it was like a note about a town or something like that. And that did not phase me as something that was helpful at all. Like I read it, and it's just like there was a cryptic message in it. But like I didn't think anything of it at all. Like that didn't feel worth it. Like that was a like that was a very difficult mission that required fighting a pretty tough boss, and I felt like I got nothing for it. But then I just happened to wander into the location it was referring to, and like a lot of stuff fell in place, and that you know was the clue that I needed to finish something else, and then that led me to this area where I fought another boss, and then I got a really really powerful staff, and like there's just. There's stuff like that that you don't even know to look for if you haven't given the game enough time. And you're not going to enjoy the game without those things, but also you just have to stick with it until you get there. And for a lot of people, for me until very recently, that was a that was a non sequitur. Like like I find that out and I'm just like, Nope, this doesn't matter. <laughs> so I think I, a big thing of the whole Soulsborne genre is that it expects you to know and understand the language of video games, like the things that video games will telegraph, either through like lighting or... Like, you need to be able to pay attention to the things that these Soulsborne games imply. This is just going to sound really weird, I think, but I, I do just want to go ahead and get it out. Like, you have to pay attention to a lot of things that these games say implicitly that most other games would say explicitly. Yes, that's that's a really good way to put it. You know, in a lot of other games, if you picked up a quest item, it would pop up on screen and say quest item and then a reference to whatever quest it is in this game. In this game, you pick up a quest item, it tells you its name and gives you like a very rudimentary picture. That's all you get unless you go digging for more. And like in combat, if an enemy is using some kind of special element or something, in most games you'd probably have like a meter or some kind of like something on screen to indicate you've been hit by that element or that enemy uses that element. In this game, you just kind of need to intuit it so you can know like what resistances or what you know weaknesses you can exploit. And it's there's a lot of things that this game either doesn't tell you that other games would. Or that it tells you, but only buried in like tutorial menus or an item that you have to read the description of or something like that. And yeah. like that's not a design flaw, 
but it's certainly not what anyone is expecting if they haven't played games like this before, but they've played other big RPGs. I think, like, there are a lot of things in these in, the, in this whole series that, if this was your first game, would make no sense to you at all. For sure. And For there's sure. there would be nothing in the game that would explain it. Then, and then there's stuff like the quest system, the, the way quests work in this game. Like, you don't have a journal or even any kind of like markers or logs or anything uh sometimes you'll get a quest and if you don't pay attention you won't even know you got a quest uh i was talking to some guy dressed up like a werewolf and he told me to go somewhere and do something and i did not read what he said to do because we were on stream and i wasn't paying full attention at that moment and then if i talked to him again he doesn't give me that information again. He's just like, hey, do that thing I told you to do. Yeah, this it's... is kind of both a good and a bad, but I, I think the game really rewards you for like paying attention. You gotta keep a journal. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Journalgate 2022. You know, it's it's kind of an extreme version of something I've said I like about games like uh, Morrowind. Where Morrowind... I mean, Morrowind keeps a journal for you. But when someone gives you directions there's no marker to go along with it. It's just like, all right, yeah, you need to head out of town, turn east at this bridge. You'll run into like a weird looking tree. Uh, so to take, take a left there. <laughs> It'll be weird directions with mixtures of like turn east, west, north, south and left and right. And just keep going forwards. Like this game does that, but I think it also kind of serves to obfuscate things where if you miss those directions the first time, for some reason they decided you're not getting them a second time. <laughs> yeah. And it's also weird because when you couple that with the fact that there are so many like combat mechanics in this game that are never outright stated, I feel like this game was just sort of made to be Googled a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know anyone who's playing this game without looking up some stuff. Like, I've stayed off of it in terms of like quest items and things. But I've had to look up how certain attacks work or how different stats function and that the ashes of war. I understand it now, but it they totally broke my brain when I first started trying to like piece this together, like the way they impact stats and stuff. Like, yeah, like the way that um, attribute scaling works in the game, I think is a little confusing and it's not really adequately explained anywhere. Yeah. Because we were talking about this on our first stream of Elden Ring where uh, I kind of led you to where you can get the whetstone knife that you could apply the Ashes of War. And then we started messing around with them f for a few minutes and had no idea what any of them were going to do. Right, because one, like, one number got smaller, one got bigger. Like, it's it, everything about it was so weird. Sometimes the numbers were bigger, but they were red, which red's definitely a bad thing. <laughs> like... like it's just, there's there's a lot of, a, a really good word for this game that I heard used a lot, mainly by people that disliked it, though, was the word obtuse, which there's a lot about this game that is certainly obtuse. <laughs> but that being said, the more time I've spent with it, which I've spent a lot of time with it the last couple of weeks, like, I've really, really come to appreciate just about everything this game does. It's just... Getting there took way longer than I would have ever had the patience for at basically any other point in my life. 
It's definitely kind of a weird situation where I am upset that a lot of things aren't adequately explained. Uh, but there are so many... <laughs> There are so many of those things that if they did adequately explain all of them, I would I would have complained about having to read too many tutorials. Right, right. Like if this game were to adequately explain all the systems in place, this game would just this game would be like ten hours of tutorial before you got to do anything. Like And I do feel like a lot of the confusing things, yeah, uh, if you pay attention and kind of mess around with your gear and stuff like that, you can kind of intuit. Um, sure. And maybe that's I mean, I assume that's intentional, like, because we've been playing games for, you know, 15, 20 years, <laughs> at least in some facet, um, Jackson a little bit less, but, you know, there are still things in the game that don't necessarily make sense, and you would think after having that much experience that you wouldn't really run into things like that anymore. Now, on our last episode... Uh, we were talking about Horizon, we sort of talked a little bit about open-world fatigue and how every game was feeling the need to sort of, you know, take up this space in a, in a massive open world. Now, I think that even if you're not necessarily a fan of, you know, from software games for their combat or their progression or whatever, I think most people that give this game an honest shot will agree is one of the best open worlds I've ever seen in a game. It might just outright be the best open world there has been in a video yeah. game. Got a lot of problem with the bosses, just but the rest of this game, mostly the open world is fantastic. There's I think, just I think a big so much. a big thing that kind of comes up that this game showed me is I don't necessarily know if it's open world fatigue so much as collectathon fatigue for sure for sure yeah um, i think there's i think there's a bit of i guess fomo <laughs> you know fear of missing out with open world games where like you'll see 1500 things across the map that you need to collect or visit or bandit camps to clear out and you feel like you need to do all of them and I think a big advantage that this game has, once again, by just not having markers all over the place, is you don't necessarily feel like you have to do everything. You only want to do the things that look interesting to you. Right. And there are a lot of things that look interesting, which is, I think, even more impressive. Like, not only is this world big and open and lets you do what you want, basically anywhere you look, any direction, there's going to be some building or some landmark or even just some enemy standing out in the open that's inviting you to engage with it in a way that's going to be both interesting and rewarding, but also probably very punishing. There's also the factor of, like, the things that you do in the world don't change the world in any meaningful way, really, which sounds like a bad thing, but I think that it kind of helps the open world to feel feel less like you have to do everything. I mean, like, clearing out a bandit camp isn't going to do anything, because as soon as you go somewhere to heal, that bandit camp's going to fill back up. Actually, that's a, that's a really good point I hadn't really thought about before, because, like, with, you know, with Horizon recently, I mean, I really enjoy the game, but, you know, as I am progressing through the story, and it's turning into this, you know, potentially world-ending scenario, and my focus is on really big picture stuff 
why from a narrative standpoint would I be the one dealing with like 10 thugs that are just like setting up a camp near a city? Like, why would that be my responsibility in this game? You kind of feel like a small, you know, small fry pretty much the entire time. Like I'm level 82 right now, I think. And I still feel like I am a wimp compared to some of the things I see in this world. Yeah, I think there's a big focus, too, on, you know, all of the enemies that you're fighting. I mean, they're, they're obviously, like, the normal fodder enemies, the small ones that go down in, like, two to five hits, right? But once you're dealing with any kind of boss enemy or large enemy, like, you're outmatched. It, it is really all up to the skills that you've acquired along the way. And I think that kind of serves to incentivize you not to get into every fight that you see. Like, if you see a giant lobster and you're like, wow, that giant lobster looks scary. You don't have to deal with that giant lobster. And even if you do deal with it, it's not like it's not going to be there the next time you come through. It's not going to help clear the way for you. You're either doing it for your own vanity or just to level up, which doesn't sound like a positive. (laughs) No, but but it is, though, like. Everything in this game is sort of on equal footing. There's no one thing you can do that is going to just fundamentally change, you know, how you play the game. Everywhere you go and everything you do is sort of... It has the same potential to give you something cool or to give you some new power or something that anywhere else does. I mean, there are there are places you can go in the first hours of the game and find weapons that still hold up, you know, where I'm at, 40 hours in. So... It's nothing feels like it's worthless. I will admit there is a lot in this game. And sometimes, you know, you work your way through a dungeon and all you get is like a weapon that's outside of your class or a summon that, you know, isn't as good as your current one. And like, you know, sometimes you retroactively feel like "Eh, that was that was a waste of time. But I never feel like the experiences getting there aren't still positive, if that makes sense. Yeah. And on the upside, like as long as you're still in an area that's around your level, or you know, around if you're in an area where the enemies are still like moderately difficult, even if you don't get like a good item or summon or whatever at the end, like you'll still get the experience. Yeah, you can level up at least, and I, I feel like leveling up sometimes means absolutely nothing, and sometimes will be an absolute game changer. Uh, sometimes you'll level up and you'll move a stat point and it will literally only impact one stat of like 20 you have. And the next time you'll move it up one more point and suddenly literally everything on the page will go up. Like it's very strange the way that works. And I think it's, I think there's several factors that lead to that, but you level up fast enough for the most part that it, that even the levels where all you're getting is, you know, one of this most, the most minuscule buffs it still feels like it's okay because you know next level you'll get more. Now, I will say it takes way too long in this game to get to the point where you can respec your skills. And I think if you're not, if you don't know what you're doing when leveling up, it can be really easy to sort of shoot yourself in the foot pretty early on. I do wish that you could respec after like, maybe like after the first story boss instead of after the fourth. But all in all, I still think the stat system is forgiving enough or the the rate at which you level up is forgiving enough that the stat system being a little iffy isn't that big a deal 
like I said before, I, I, I played, I'm playing as the astrologer, or that was my starting class, which is sort of a magic-centric class. And it starts off with two, like, really good spells that I actually still use pretty frequently now, even, you know, 70 levels later. But I sort of... It was when I hit the first boss that I realized, like, you know, magic's great, but it's not the end-all, be-all. Like, you gotta have some kind of physical abilities as well. Mm-hmm. And So you run Wolverine Claws. I do not. I I thought that was a really cool idea at first, and was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go all claws except for when I'm casting, and then I realize I'm not nearly good enough at the game to do that. So I I run uh, a shield and a hand axe as like my main go to, and then I just switch to spells for enemies that are just significantly easier to dispatch far away. But I'm still like I've been able to sort of set up my whole build where like between ashes of war and eventually you get a magic whetstone and you know just some other ways to sort of shift around the the stat scaling like even though i use an axe for probably 80 percent of the enemies i fight my character is still 100 percent intelligence based like intelligence is my only good offensive stat and it's like 20 some points higher than any of my others and i can still use that to swing an axe really good so, like, there's a lot of really wild ways you can build out a character in this game, and it's it's really interesting to see how they have balanced everything in the game to that. Mm-hmm. Like, there are certainly exploitable enemies if you have the right build, but for the most part, I feel like every boss is still put up, except one. One story boss was randomly very easy, but almost every boss is still put up, like, a really good fight, you know, sort of no matter what I go in with which is which is really cool and yeah, i definitely think the ashes of war and the adjectives you can equip from them are, <laughs> are like a game changer for letting yeah. you customize your loadout because you can have two people with the exact same weapons but the way that they use them could be entirely different right like a quality great sword and a keen great sword are very different weapons mm-hmm <laughs> Or if you have a magic weapon, like, suddenly your normal offensive skills, like strength and dexterity, don't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Or at least matter significantly less. That's basically what I did. Like, as soon as I found this point in the game where you could respec, I basically dumped all of my strength and dexterity points I had used and put them all into intelligence. Because at that point, my axe was, it was a, you know, a magic axe plus 18 or something like that. So, like, I didn't need to be strong anymore. I was smart. (laughs) All fun and games until you run into an enemy with magic resistance. Do we want to talk about the boss fights, really, any? Go in-depth on any of them. Not all bosses are created equally. (laughs) Both the (laughs) optional ones and the story ones. Because... You know, Margit, the very first story boss you encounter is brutal. Very aggressive, stays in your face, uses magic melee weapons, so blocking isn't as much of an option. And then the second boss, still tough, and actually has like a much wider range of abilities, much easier to kill, because if you get close, they just, they just don't have as many options for dealing with you. And, you know, it feels like... They wanted there to be variety, but because there is variety, sometimes it breaks down to where they're just not as fun to fight in the end. 
And that's, that's ironically, the opposite of what Sekiro did. Because I, I think Sekiro has the best boss fights of any video game I've ever played. I mean, Sekiro has an advantage of they only have one control. Weapon. Yeah, yeah, like there's only right. one play style that you're really going to have to run into. Right, there is a correct way to play Sekiro. Yeah. Right. But at right. the end of the day, like... Your your character is going to be built based around. Well, there's just no character building. Yeah, it, like, it's gonna be like stealth and agility or strength and agility. <laughs> like. Yeah. No, in Sekiro, you're not you're not managing stats. You only have you have one primary weapon, which is your katana, and then you have a handful of secondary weapons. But on their own, they're not that great until really late in the game. And generally speaking, you have to handle bosses the same way. Like you might. If you're really smart, you can sometimes get in like a stealth strike to give you an advantage early on. But at the end of the day, you have to fight these bosses the way the game wants you to fight them. Mm-hmm. Elden Ring doesn't have that advantage because there are, I want to think, 96 different weapon types. And all of them have at least slightly different movesets that you have to account for. And they can all be modified a hundred different ways with Ashes of War and you know your character's builds and stuff like that. So there is a lot to account for. And sometimes it doesn't account for it all as well as other times. And the further that I've gotten in the game, you know, at first I I made it to the first boss in several hours. But before I started where I'm at now, like the third major castle in the game, which is where the sixth boss is. Mm-hmm. Well, six or it's like fifth through seventh, depending on the order you do things in. But this boss, you know, even though I've still died a couple of times in the castle, it's... Like, I'm having a significantly easier time than I did in the lead-up to, like, the second story boss. Because I'm just better prepared and have taken more time to go out and grind and find stuff. You know, there is one small thing I want to get into. In that, I feel like the legacy dungeons, the the big sprawling dungeons with the boss fights, I think that those are a lot better than the normal, like, optional dungeons that you can do. Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of the normal dungeons are fairly straightforward uh, like it'll have a few branching hallways, but generally to complete the dungeon, you'll have to go all the way to the end. And then at the end of the dungeon, there's going to be like a handle or something that'll open a door and then you fight the boss and the bosses in these dungeons don't necessarily feel as interesting. Normally they'll be like weird designs, but they, they definitely feel a bit more formulaic. I guess they kind of all yeah. feel like samey at the end of the day. Well, and some do just straight up have the same boss, just with like a slight modification at the end. My favorite boss, though, has got to be the one that says it's like a cemetery guard dog or something like that, and it's a cat. That's ironic, because that's exactly the one I'm thinking of, because you fight that (laughs) same boss a couple of times, and it's just like slightly different movesets. Yeah. Like, I think that the designs can be fun, but... And I know that, like, to have the sheer number of dungeons that are in this game... Like, they had to do something like that. It is a little disappointing. And when you're doing, like, a big legacy dungeon, like, you can tell how much how much better it is. I have a whole lot more to say about this game, but I'm blanking right now. Jackson, what, what do you think about this game? You got anything you wanted to bring up? You were a uh, little bit more negative when we were talking about it. So, I mean, like... Like I said, I don't care for the boss fights, but everything else, everything else in this game really really good when i'm fighting regular enemies the combat is 
amazing. I love it. It's extremely fun. The exploration is definitely where this game shines. There is there's a lot to do. I think I spent like three hours in just like one small portion of the first map. And even then, I felt like I still had more I could do there. But like the game, you know, without having ma um, markers on the map, like doesn't make you feel like you have to do everything there. Like, it makes it actually feel like if you want to go do stuff, you can, but you don't have to. Which I think is just a really good way to do an open world. Especially when every other open world game, you know, gives you 20,000 map markers that get cleared out within, like, an hour. I think a lot of game developers will go a lot more minimalist after seeing how successful Elden Ring is because of that aspect. Wow. We're going to enter a new golden age of open world. I would also say that, but um, you think Ubisoft's going to do that? <laughs> I wish. I think Ubisoft will try in a very, like, half-hearted way. Like, I think that the next Assassin's Creed or whatever will not, like, will at least have an option where you can play without all of that stuff, but then it's just not going to fit. <laughs> Sorry, the next Assassin's Creed is a live service game. Yeah. Well, there Rest goes that. <laughs> you know, no what, shame though? to live service games overall. That just definitely should not be one. <laughs> I don't know. I think Assassin's Creed. We're getting way off topic, but I, I think Assassin's Creed could make the the jump to live service pretty successfully. It has the whole animus thing built in, so it it is a live service game in fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wasn't wasn't Black uh, Black Flag like all the modern world stuff about creating like. Wasn't it a video game company or something? Well, they were like just so you could like relive historical yeah. experiences. So basically, yeah, <laughs> they were just creating Assassin's Creed. I hope the next From Software game is live service. <laughs> huh? There's a mob outside my apartment. <laughs> but yeah, overall, like it is a very good game. It's just you know I don't enjoy the boss fights, so I don't really know if I see myself coming back to play more. But it's it's funny you say that because I think the combat with normal enemies sucks. Like I don't find that fun at all. Like I, I think that like the exploration is fun, but the only time that combat really feels like it matters is when I'm fighting a boss. Because with normal enemies, generally you're gonna encounter them in like groups and when you beat that group you're gonna get your healing stuff back so there's not really you know you're kind of incentivized to use your healing stuff as you need it and and this is something that also kind of gets turned on its head when you're in the dungeons but when you're just out exploring the world you run into those groups of enemies i never really feel like i'm gonna die fighting a random knight <laughs> After a while, the a lot of the open world encounters become sort of trivial. Yeah. And, and then, like, the fond memories that I have of the combat are things like fighting the bosses. Or fighting, like, really big enemies, like those giants. But even then, after you kind of learn... After you learn an enemy like that, the giants are kind of trivialized, even. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's just sort of the nature of the beast here. You know, any fight, if you do it often enough and with the with an intention to do it quickly enough, it's going to become more trivial than anything. Um, honestly, I think part of the fun in the game is getting to that point. Yeah, I mean, once you get to that point, though, there's still plenty of game left. Sure. And the sure. only real challenge you're going to run into... I mean, obviously, 
there are there are difficult enemies around the map. Like even in just the the first area, like there are giant crabs and giant bears and a dragon um, <laughs> that will yeah. just absolutely destroy you. But once you learn to avoid things like that or how to handle them, like they don't, they're not really that big of an issue anymore. Uh, and they do make the enemies harder. Like when you get to the second map, you run into or you know after you beat the second boss and it opens up the Lyernia map, which actually I think you can get there before fighting the boss. I found a shortcut to go back to Libgrave, and it seemed like I could have just taken that shortcut the first time. I'm pretty sure you can get through pretty much the whole game without doing boss fights as long as you know where to go. And a lot of it is intentionally hidden, but yeah. Yeah, kind of lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? Combat. Trivialization. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like the, the enemies do get harder as you get to these newer maps, but... Like, a normal group of enemies is not going to be able to take you down unless you royally screw up. So, like, you always need to pay attention to combat. But I don't have any fond memories, really, of just fighting a group of soldiers. Whereas, like, even though I was really annoyed and stressed out at the time when I was fighting Marget and, uh, shoot, the second guy. (laughs) Roderick or whatever. Roderick from, uh, the freaking. Diary of a Diary Wimpy, of a wimpy kid. kid? Roderick? I think it's Godric the Grafted, I think. Yeah, and like those fights are really fun, and I have a lot of fond memories from those fights. Like, because they actually kind of put my combat skills to the test. And some of the smaller bosses are even pretty good for doing that. Uh, especially like the really aggressive ones. The ones that'll like run at you, and they have like heavy attacks and slam attacks and stuff like that. So you really need to pay attention to your spacing. I think for me, it's it's actually kind of ironic because I think it's the open world that really sells this game that really helped me to connect with it early on. But I think that the when the game is at its best is when you're first stepping into a legacy dungeon for the first time. At first, they appear kind of linear, like you really only have one direction to move. But as you open more doors and you find some shortcuts and you realize, oh, hey, I can jump over this guardrail you realize that they are so much bigger and open up to so much more than you're anticipating. And they also have a a lot of variety in enemy type, which is really cool. And the legacy dungeons fix something about fighting the normal enemies in that when you, when you fight large groups in the open world, you will get your healing stuff back at the end of the fight, or at least, you know, one use or two uses or however many, when you're in a legacy dungeon, that feature is gone. The only way you get your flask back is by resting at a point of grace or a site of grace. And I think that that makes the combat with normal enemies feel a lot better. I get why they did it, because when you're traveling the open world, you don't want to have to rest every five minutes. Yeah. Because you, know, you got into like four big fights and you needed to right. use one flask every time. Like, But when you're in these dungeons, like it feels like every fight is a bigger deal because you're either going to have to play it a lot safer so you don't have to use as many healing items or you can risk your healing items but you'll be you know less prepared for the next fight and like i'm in the third legacy dungeon now and i feel like i know it pretty well and there will still be times where i screw up and like literally the second or third enemy i come across you know almost kills me and then i have to start using healing items and then i have to think like well do i go back or do i charge on with less items than i'm used to or Mm -hmm. you know it's it it feels like it's a good risk reward system in those dungeons that the game doesn't necessarily have the rest of the time where the rest of the time the risk reward really is just 
you know, if I lose my experience, I'm going to have to make a mad dash back to get it. And even then, you have the horse now, which most enemies won't chase you too far. And even if they do chase you, like, the horse is going to outrun them. (laughs) So it it really feels like there's just not enough risk in the open world. It kind of feels like maybe if we played more of the game, you know, like, if, (laughs) you know, by the time we're at the end of the game at our current rate, where, you know, you're like 40 hours in, right? Yeah. I'm probably I'm probably approximately halfway through based on the amount of time it takes most people to finish the game. Yeah. And I mean assuming that it gets more difficult uh you know near the end of the game like you're probably looking at somewhere between 70 and 100 hours, I would say. Right. Uh, so yeah. like is the open world like just getting into random fights and even the optional dungeons like is that going to be able to keep up? Now, I will say I think that because I'm in basically what I, guess, what I guess you can sort of consider the third region of the game, almost. Mm-hmm. And in my experience with that, the regular enemies you encounter in the open world are, are certainly more deadly. But also, there's just better stuff hidden around the world. Not even just in dungeons, but you can just find better items just by like strolling through camps or you know, searching around areas where a lot of enemies spawn. Like, I think that they definitely do a good job of ramping up how rewarding the world is as you go. It, you know, it's not to say that will hold up for, you know, another 40 plus hours, but I'm still, like, every time that I think I'm getting tired of the game or I'm starting to get burnt out, I sort of open up something new or somewhere new to explore, and then that's totally gone. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes sense. And that, I mean, that's kind of how I feel. Uh, as well i was just bringing up you know like there is a possible issue of the the normal mobs in the open world just kind of getting old at a certain point yeah um but like we mentioned when you're talking about exploration like you don't have to fight them if you don't want to so yeah yeah i've already found one enemy that um like a, a an optional boss that killed me so fast that i was just like well, I'm never dealing with this thing. <laughs> and I haven't gone back to in like 15 hours. <laughs> so. He killed you so fast, you were just like, understandable. Yeah. Uh, this is clearly like, your home, and like, I'm sorry yes. for trespassing. <laughs> Basically, yeah. It's like, you're right, I shouldn't have came here. <laughs> Deepest apologies. Please keep the souls. Yeah. Or the runes. Runes. Yeah, no souls in this souls. Like. <laughs> They really okay. did just, they played it like Mad Libs, though. Okay. Well, I think it's about time that we start wrapping it up on Elden Ring. We can finally put this this awful, awful game behind us. <laughs> uh, Jackson, you already sort of gave us this, but do you have anything you want to say as, as your recap? Uh, I mean, I guess I'll just say the same thing I've already said two other times. Uh. Say the line, I, Jackson. I don't like I I don't like the boss fights. Whoa! <laughs> I don't like the core concept of the game. <laughs> but everything else is really good. Best open world I've seen in a video game in at least a long time. Yeah, I've already said that two other times, so it feels like the, <laughs> not gonna add anymore. I do have a small complaint. It does feel like the controller is a little overloaded in this game. Yeah. 
a lot more yeah. button combinations than previous games. Not that it's like that big of a deal, but just kind of something I was thinking about. I find myself like holding circle to sprint and holding triangle to pull up my quick menu and trying to drink a potion. <laughs> Jason, why don't you give us your recap? I mean, to say what I already said, <laughs> I, I, I think that the open world in this game is incredible. And I, I do think that there's always something on the horizon, whether it be some crazy weird ruins or a dragon's nest or, or just a giant tree. Like, there's always something on the horizon that kind of draws you to it. And you're like, oh, I want to explore here. And the game lets you explore there. But it never makes you feel like you have to explore there. And I, I think that that's kind of like a big key to making exploration in a game feel good. Is that there should be things that are interesting in the world for me to explore. And there should be actually things there to do, generally. And I can kind of bring this back to last week's episode, talking about Horizon Forbidden West. When you were talking about there being like a crash satellite or a giant robot, I don't know exactly what it was, that you saw out in the distance and you thought it looked super interesting. And when you got up to it, there wasn't really anything there. Yeah. Elden Ring doesn't do that. Generally, if you see something cool off in the distance and you go there, there's probably a boss fight. And I mean, I guess there could be some complaint of you always know what's going to be there. <laughs> but you are at least guaranteed something will at be there. At least there's generally. something there. And then, I may not like those, uh, those boss fights, but like, I still find that a lot more interesting than just going up to a giant robot that has nothing in Forbidden West. You always know that your exploration is going to be in some way rewarded. Now, that that reward might not always be the most interesting. It might not be something super useful for your build, but you at least got to see the cool thing up close and fight some cool monsters while you were there. And, I mean, kind of counter Jackson, like, I really enjoyed the boss fights. I think that they're very interesting. They kind of incentivize you to play the game differently than how you would fight normal enemies. You know, kind of, I feel like you can get away with not dodge rolling quite as often when you're fighting normal enemies. And the boss fights definitely kind of incentivize dodge rolling a lot. <laughs> Taking advantage of like every invincibility frame that you can get. And I, I just think it's really good combat. I think it feels nice when you're fighting difficult enemies. That said, I'm not quite as far as Jordan. I've kind of just been wasting time after beating the second boss, kind of exploring that area, fighting a giant lobster, getting killed by a giant lobster, having a great time. Uh, and I definitely see this as the kind of game that I'll come back to, you know? it's it's a, It'll be like, um, like uh, Forza Horizon 5, a game for all seasons. Because I don't see another game coming out anytime soon that's really going to scratch the same itch that Elden Ring does. I don't know. Have you seen Legends Arceus? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would say that's about it for me. I would recommend this game if you like difficult boss fights and cool open worlds. And I would not recommend this game if you don't like running into the same wall 40 times. Until the dent that your head makes in the wall is big enough for you to kind of squeeze your whole body through. Anyways, Jordan? Well, I've been thinking long and hard about this how to sort of put together my many, many thoughts about Elden Ring. And after an extensive writing process, this is what I've come up with. Elden Ring is one of the best games I've ever played. Okay, bye. <laughs>
No, I, I could agree I, with I, that. Like, realistically, you know, as as many issues as there are with this game, I think on the outset, the more time you spend with them, the more they start to fade away. And I still think they could make that transition to that point significantly easier without impacting the the tone or the general vibe of the game like a lot of fans say they can't. But like once you really click with how the world works and why the characters work the way they do, I, I totally get why people are as obsessed with these games as they are. Like I want I like the like I've already played more of this game than most games ever run and you know i still am like so excited to jump back into it like it's like like i said before every time that i start to feel even like the little like the the, you know the smallest sense of fatigue or that i'm ready for something else it throws something wild at me and you know i've just i've been more impressed with it pretty much every time i've played it which is really about the best thing i could hope for in a game so I have a very hard time even imagining another game coming close like for, you know, like game of the year consideration or like, you know, a game I spend as much time with this year as I have with Elden Ring. And it came out in February of all times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there is one kind of small thing I want to add to my review and that's I've spoken many times I don't necessarily know how many times I've spoken about it on the podcast, but I I definitely would prioritize a good, interesting story over gameplay most of the time. I mean, I I definitely would say Western RPGs are generally like my favorite games of all time. Games like Mass Effect, um, Fallout New Vegas. (laughs) And even so, with like how little story or, you know, ways that you can affect the world that Elden Ring has, I still think that this game's, like, incredible. I, I think it definitely... It still tells a really interesting story, but it does tell it more in the background. And it tells it more through your actions and the gameplay than a lot of other games that I've seen, too. Like, I, I definitely think that it's an incredible experience, and I would highly recommend it to just about anybody. Just know what you're getting into first, because it, it can certainly be frustrating. And I'm glad, I'm really, really glad... That this game, this game came out at the point in my life when it did, because I know if I was just a couple years younger, I would have totally bounced off of this. Like I would have not had the patience for it. I would have not had the interest in digging through some of the, you know, the the cruft around this game to get to when it's truly excellent. But it is truly excellent. But I think that just about does it for Elden Ring, and we've already gone a real long time, so we're going straight into pulling the plug. Jackson, what else have you been into? Well, we went to see Batman recently. I bet you guys didn't know that. Batman recently. This reminds me of the iconic scene from the hit show, The Batman. When someone calls him Batman, and he says, that's the Batman. After we watched The Batman, which is extremely good, and uh, you should definitely go watch it, I decided that I'd rewatch the Nolan trilogy, because I haven't watched those in forever. And, like, I think, um, other than uh, Dark Knight Rises, well, other than, like, parts of Dark Knight Rises, it's a pretty good trilogy. 
I think, but, uh, yeah. but no one's ever said that before. I would say that the Nolan trilogy has one of the best Batman movies of all time in it, and also Batman Begins and The Dark Knight Rises. It's one of the I, best Batman depictions ever, sandwiched between two of the worst. I, I mean, I wouldn't say Batman Begins is one of the worst. I would say Dark Knight nah, Rises. Is... Dark Knight Rises, yeah. Um, it Dark Knight Rises got a lot of issues. It's still, like, watchable, but... As a big fan of Tom Hardy, what was he doing with Bane? <laughs> <laughs> But, like, Batman Begins, it's a good starting place for Batman. The villains just suck. <laughs> um, which is really disappointing to me, because Scarecrow and Ra's al Ghul are two of my favorite Batman villains, and they got nothing. Like, it's just disappointing how much they suck in that movie. <laughs> I, I don't know if we'll ever see a good Scarecrow depiction in a movie. Which really sucks, because he's one of my favorites. I feel like Scarecrow is one of the ones that's really hard to get right. Yeah. But, like, Scarecrow's basically just a pawn for Ra's al Ghul for most of that movie. <laughs> Another big problem, the action sequences in Batman Begins are garbage. Like, cutting to a different angle, like, mid-swing. Tons of scene cutting, just, like, in every action scene, to the point where it's just unwatchable which is kind of weird because nolan had done action movies before yeah i mean i get who was the cinematographer on batman begins i don't know we can just cut that question (laughs) (laughs) but the action scenes in uh dark knight and dark knight rises are like really good so i'm glad they fixed that because that was that's honestly my biggest complaint about batman begins because like it's part of batman's whole thing he beats people up senselessly. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to talk about the Nolan trilogy, we got to get into Dark Knight. Dark Knight was incredible. Dark Knight is yeah, I'm I still can't decide if I think Dark Knight or the Batman is the best Batman uh movie. And maybe I know though, oh. Dark Knight has my favorite live action villain of any movie with uh Two-Face. Two-Face. Yeah. Two-Face, Two-Face is incredible. Face. He's my favorite Batman yeah. villain period. And he's so I, good in that movie. I know, like, I, like, yeah, like, before watching ba- uh, Dark Knight Rise, uh, <laughs> I said the wrong name twice. Before watching Dark Knight again, in the first time in, like, ten years, like, I never really thought much of Two-Face, but, like, because of that movie, he, yeah, he's, he's now one of my favorites. <laughs> Look, I gotta say, Heath Ledger is incredible as the Joker in The Dark Knight. I really do think that Two-Face steals the show. Aaron Eckhart. I, I think that he just blows it away as Two-Face. And I think that like his whole arc is significantly more interesting than anything else going in, on in the movie. Like The Joker is cool. And I think a big reason that people remember him so fondly is because it's such a different... Uh, it, it's such a different take on the Joker than what you've seen in any previous yeah. movies. And I doubt we'll ever really see a take like that again. Unless they're just, well, I don't think we'll see like such a departure like that again, other than just mm-hmm. people copying what Heath Ledger and the scriptwriters for this movie did with him. Which I feel like another thing, like Joker is very obviously presented as the main villain for most of the movie, mm-hmm. but I think the point of that is like to set him up to set Two Face up as the main villain for the movie. Because once you hit a certain point in the movie, like Two Face is the real bad guy. <laughs> 
to an extent. Like, Joker's still the one, you know, like, trying to blow up boats uh, <laughs> and, you know... Like a joke, people you know. Have, yeah. Dude, when Joker <laughs> blew up those boats, I was dying. <laughs> he didn't blow up the boats. He failed. Batman beat him. When Joker but, tried to blow up those boats, and I was one of the people that Batman killed in that scene on accident. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Dark Knight all around is just like a great movie. Easily, at least in the top two Batman films. And then you got Dark Knight Rises, which is in probably uh, like the bottom the worst. three. <laughs> yeah, I would say worst two, but then I remembered uh, you haven't seen Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. <laughs> well, I I remembered uh, Batman and Robin. I forgot Batman Forever. Yeah, yeah, those are the worst two. Batman Forever is incredible. <laughs> he had a bat credit card. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Dark Knight Rises, yeah, it just kind of sucks. <laughs> Like the, the ac- bat the credit action- card said Batman. Good through <laughs> forever. <laughs> that's where the that's where the uh, the subtitle of the movie came from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Dark Knight Rises just kind of sucks. <laughs> I think all the previous characters that have been in previous movies were done well, but I did not like Bane. I did not like Talia Al Ghul mostly because that was a stupid twist, and I did not like Catwoman. I like how Bane stole all of Bruce Wayne's money and like right before carrying out a terrorist attack on the on the the Gotham stock market or whatever and instead of just being like oh that was probably a fraudulent activity they were just like nah it's good he's broke now. <laughs> yeah, that movie is just it's a mess. I like I think I don't know. It my best way to describe it is it's the same as every Transformers movie. It's more about the police than it is the title character. <laughs> there are more action sequences with the police than there are Batman. And that's stupid. It's a Batman movie. Don't the police get trapped in the sewers for literally months? <laughs> yes, they're trapped in the sewers for six months, I think. It's either three or six months. And then they all just run out like ready to fight. It's like, no, yep. these people would have been starving to death. <laughs> I mean, they they had people like bringing them like supplies and stuff, but like, I, I, it's it's so stupid. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been spending way too much time with Batman. I'm even now replaying the Arkham games, <laughs> but I don't have much to say about those until the next time we have an episode. So Jason, what have you been doing? I think at some point in the near future, we need to talk about Batman more extensively. <laughs> do a whole episode on batman we'll, we'll workshop that a bit yeah the, the the new movie not uh no i'm thinking just batman as a whole the like, character. i just wanted to, i just want to talk about batman in all his forms and all of his phases like, we're gonna we're gonna do like a live stream where we do a watch uh, of every single batman movie in one city yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be miserable i really like the prison in the dark knight rises where if you can climb out of it, you're good. Yeah. They're like, no you're going to prison. And they're like, there's no guards here. It's just like, if you're really into rock climbing, like, you're fine. <laughs> it was made by a guy who was like, yeah, I made this really cool rock climbing course. And then uh, the government stole it from him and opened up a prison. And he was like, whoa, my rock climbing course. And then they threw him in the prison. 
he just climbed back out. He was like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? I didn't really have anywhere to go with that. I don't know. I don't even think it was that funny when I explained it. It was funny in my mind, though, and I'm glad that I got to share it. Don't cut any of it. Anyways, what have you been doing, Jason? So part of the reason I hadn't been playing too much Elden Ring this week is because I decided on a whim to pick up 2017's Prey. Guys, that game's pretty good. Um, I really like just kind of exploring the space station in the game and working to find all of the different crew members. I mean, the main plot of the game is just like you wake up from a simulation being done on you or that you're trapped in by like a giant biotech company in space. And the station's been taken over by aliens that can disguise themselves as just about anything. And you need to just get through the station and figure out how to deal with that. I mean, it's it's pretty simple at like a high level. The big thing in the game is that there are neuromods that you can get through the game. And they start off pretty mundane, just like, oh yeah, you're stronger or healthier. Like you have more health, uh, better stamina, better at using guns. And then after a certain point, you start being able to get the abilities that the aliens on the ship have. And they can, they can do crazy stuff like telepathy or... Mimic objects. Yeah, well, I already mentioned that they could mimic objects, but you can also do that. It's just really fun. I, I know, Jordan, you've you've played a little bit of it back when it was yeah. new. So I, I played the first several hours when it first came out, and I actually I dove back into it a little bit this week. I played probably the first three or so hours. I forgot just how unsettling the game could be at first, especially when you're just very, like, you don't have many weapons and, you know, ammo is scarce and all that, and the fact that basically any inanimate object can turn into an enemy, and, like, odds are that enemy is not going to do much damage, but if you find three of them, they might do a lot, and it, it really adds up, and it's it, it kind of keeps you tense for the first, first parts of the game. Yeah, it's really cool how it blends how tense you are at the beginning of the game with how powerful it makes you feel near the end. It's just a lot of fun. Because, like, in the beginning, like you mentioned, like, three mimics will take you out. And you'll run into a room that has a phantom in it, and that's basically a boss fight. But then, I mean, like, I have an ability now. I can take out phantoms in one hit, like, without even really having to think about it. It's really fun, and it really does... It's probably one of the better immersive sims I've played in recent years. I don't know why I waited so long to play it. Um, next game, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to follow this up with the first Deus Ex game, which nails a lot of the same stuff, but it is a little bit older. So I'll be sure to give an update whenever I get finished with that. <laughs> Having a great time with Prey, though. Highly recommend it to anybody. Highly don't recommend it if you only like playing games where roll an egg around billy hatcher fans sit down (laughs) glover fans you're on thin ice (laughs) if the only game you've ever played and enjoyed was billy hatcher you're not gonna like this i I guess that's true yeah (laughs) i've enjoyed other games billy hatcher's the only one that i've loved (laughs) (laughs) so jordan what have you been into this week mainly just elden ring but one of my absolute favorite artists, Rex Orange County, put out a new album last week, and I have been pretty much playing it nonstop since it released. It's real, real good. It's 
he's sort of an interesting artist because he sort of fits in with the alt indie scene, but his music isn't really that. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit poppier, but sort of gets into some of like the some of the subject matter you normally see in the indie stuff. He's just he's really good. He he really understands how to blend a beat with like the poetics of deeper heavier music and it's just i i just really love everything he does i don't i don't really know how to talk about music if i'm being honest but i i think he's fantastic i would say probably like my second or third favorite active musician today and uh this this album is really good it also features an absolutely fantastic track uh with tyler the creator who is another one of my you know top probably four or five artists that's active today so really really excited about that but yeah it's a it's an incredible album it's called who cares it's you know on all the streaming stuff so you should you should check it out <laughs> i i would really uh hate to be rex orange county because like imagine your middle name being orange and your last name being county like <laughs> yeah that, that'd be a sucky life yeah how dare his mom, Miss County, do that to him? <laughs> okay. I too would hate to be Rex Orange County. What would I do with all of my money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, what would I do with everything I've gotten from the millions of albums I've sold? Well, I think that just about does it for another episode of the Totally Biased Media Podcast. I too would hate to be Rex Orange County. I mean, your first name is Rex. <laughs> no more notes. <laughs> Anyways, if you would like to reach out to us, you can do so at TBMcast on Twitter, at Totally Biased Media on Instagram, twitch.tv slash Totally Biased Media on Twitch. We're trying to stream more, but bare minimum once every other week. Uh, let's see. If you have your own uh, reviews you'd like to submit, or recommendations for the show, or literally anything else that you want to share with us that would be difficult to otherwise share on social media, you can send it in an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. And it occurred to me while I was starting this sentence that I hadn't checked the email in a bit, so I'm taking a really long time saying this sentence while I get it pulled up. And nope, we're good. <laughs> um, wait, let me check. Let me check the spam. <laughs> <laughs> Check the spam. No, 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 why would that's not? <laughs> Yo, we got an email from <laughs> Apple Business Team. Hooray. It says Apple makes small business better. And I won't read the rest unless they pay us. <laughs> Which I'm almost sure that that email is them asking us to pay them. So, you know. <laughs> Anyways, if you have anything you want to share with us, you can send it to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If you have your own reviews, we'd, we'd like to work them into the show. Or, you know, we will, we will certainly engage with you however we reasonably can. But, for the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. You just felt the bias. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.